What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another week of Unscripted. I'm your host, Akeem Haynes. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to give an introduction to my guest. My guest this week is physician and entrepreneur, Jonathan Kung. Jonathan specializes in the stomach, the intestines, the liver, the pancreas, all of that stuff. He is a gastroenterologist. Try and say that word three times fast and see how much of a tongue twister that can be. But in this episode, we get into many different topics. We talk about his origins growing up, all of the lessons that he learned from his peers, including his grandparents. We talk about his love for fashion and his love for sport. We talk about work-life balance. Jonathan is very adamant in this. He says, if you want to do something, you'll find time to do it. And he really lives that. He's very passionate about what he does. He does a great job of finding balance in a profession that can make it very hard to do so. He's encouraging. He delivers certain messages that will definitely stick with you. And he gives great insight to physicians coming up behind him. We even talk a little bit about Grey's Anatomy. We talk about coronavirus, the impact that it has made and that he's seeing right now. We talk a little about where he believes the world is heading when it comes to vaccines and just kind of making things a little bit more, I guess for better terms, normal. We talk about so many different things, and this is an episode that I truly think that you're going to enjoy. So without further ado, enjoy episode 47, Finding Balance with Jonathan Kung. Wait a minute, I almost forgot. Before you get into this week's episode, do me a favor. Head on over to Apple iTunes and leave a rating or a review of the podcast. It would be truly appreciated and help this podcast go up in the charts. Look, we're trying to we're trying to make some headway this year. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and we definitely need your help to get there, so I appreciate it. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, head on over to the podcast Instagram page. You can find it at unscripted PDCST. Go to the link, click the link, and you'll find how you can best support the podcast. We appreciate it. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Without further ado, Enjoy this week's episode. What's up, man? You can hear me? What's up, Akeem? How are you doing, brother? I'm well, man. What's going on with you, man? Good, man. Such an honor, man, to actually meet you and to like, to know you, to know you from afar, man. It's, I, I don't even know what to say, man. It's a, it's a huge honor to get to talk to you and actually meet you face to face so uh, bro man the honor is mine man it's been it's been um i have a bunch of questions that i want to get into and want to ask you man yeah you know i think you're a person with many deaths to you and so i'm looking forward to this conversation man but before we start the main conversation brother i want to get your thoughts on last year man i think last year was i think an interesting word to say the least among many other things man but how did you stay in the right state of mind on a day-to-day basis, man? Well, you know what? I would have to say, I mean, you got to put your family first. So uh, I needed to keep my mindset strong. I needed to stay healthy. Of course, I mean, I am a physician, so it's important to keep my body strong for my patients. But I have to admit, my my parents and my sister and my niece, they, they come, and my grandparents, they come first. So I needed to take care of them and help watch out for them. So I made sure to just uh, keep eat healthy, keep my body strong, follow the pop, proper COVID protocols. And, and uh, uh, you know, because I, if I'm not well, then, you know, I, I, I can't, can't be there for the family. And uh, uh, I think what drove me to stay focused was uh, I needed to take care of myself first before I could worry about other people. And, and I, I felt I did a pretty good job about that. And uh, uh, yeah, I guess kind of my patience and my family kind of drove me to take care of myself. Man, I read a recent post, uh, actually it was last year before I took a little bit of a hiatus from just from the public island, but man, where um, you're talking about your grandmother. And uh, she she passed away, man. It's a uh, uh, mm-hmm. sorry to hear that, man. But oh, as, thank I, you. as I was reading that, man, it, it, 
I read something that really resonated with me. Uh, you said she lived a full life, right? Yeah. What, what were some things that you took from her, man? Because I personally took a lot of things from my grandparents, man. What, what were yeah. some things that she taught you and, 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 and what do you think it means to live a full life? So what mattered to her the most was, was family, the success of family. So when her and my, gram, my grandpa, uh, my grandpa was a journalist. She kind of held the family together. She held many different jobs. Um, they knew that coming from, from China and Taiwan and moving to Manhattan back in the, in the 60s and 70s, meant she sacrificed her own career, but she knew the future would be better for her children, including mm. my dad, my aunt and my uncle. So I think leading a full life, uh, it, you have to lead by example, which she did. She didn't speak any English. She brought them through. Uh, I, I remember my dad saying they connected through, through Paris uh, um, to get to, JFK to get to New York City and my dad must my dad's 70 now he must have been maybe 10 or 11 at that time wow and uh she didn't speak any English but she didn't give up and she got uh my dad and his two siblings my aunt and uncle to the United States and you know when the time came to decide whether to to stay for her own opportunities or just to, to leave for her opportunities which were better in Asia at the time or to stay in New York uh, her and my grandpa chose to keep the family together and uh, they kind of gave up their dreams to raise the family in Manhattan. They lived mm. in Queens. So, you know, and I kind of see that's how my dad raised me. He, he's, uh, you know, we have our, our differences, just father, son, but uh, he, he, I'm very lucky. I don't, I wouldn't have any of the things I have today, let alone be able to become a physician and do the fitness that I like to do and have those opportunities. If it wasn't for him, he raised me the way and gave me the opportunities, the way his grand, my grandparents gave him. And so to live a full life is, I feel to provide for your family and not only for your family, but for your family's future. And to also do what you can for your community as well. My grandfather, I always said was a, he's a very gracious man. Even when, when the, when the NYPD came to essentially pronounce my grandmother who had already died in the apartment, my grandfather was sad, but I just, he continued to just talk to the police officers, thank them for even being there. And he literally lost his wife 15 minutes prior to that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if, I think it starts with family, but it shouldn't stop there. Uh, if you have the means and the opportunity to help and provide for your community, I think that's another way that uh, to live a full life. All the other stuff is just fluff. Even Instagram. Uh, I won a Super Bowl in Madden yesterday on PlayStation. That was a pretty big thing for me because I beat a couple about, of. Right? Yeah, but you know what? It, uh, yes, it's nice to, and, and I'm not gonna lie, it's it's nice to to be out for dinner with your friends. It's nice to get nice comments on your Instagram and to grow your network, which is really. But in the end, it's it's what you do for the people that you care about, and uh, what you do for your community. Um, and, and to add to that, when I say people that you care about. Where I disagree with a lot of people is is uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm I'm 30 years old, now. I'm 35 now, I'm 26 now. I have all the friends I need. Life is just beginning. I mm. mean, uh, I've got. I hope I got another 60 to 70 years to go. I'm going to meet all sorts of good people who I hope you know we become friends with. You know, and, and I and I and it's just part of life. Some people will stay with you. Some people, you know, you have to move on. But uh, I mean, I, I've gotten to know you and I don't think we even get to know each other if not for the power of social mm -hmm. media. And uh, I think it's a test of character. You have to be able to figure out, you know, who's who's good and, and has good intentions. And, and it's just part of living in this world today. There's a lot of things on social media that might not be the best to get involved with. But um, man, that's yeah. the that's 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 one thing that I could tell about you, man. You know, I I. I I always believed that I was a good judge of character, 
Um, and I've gotten it wrong sometimes, but I like to think I've gotten it right in more times than yeah. not. And, and, and I could definitely tell, man. And your yeah. stories you're sharing, there's a lot of your family in you. I get the sense that you're a big family-oriented guy. Yeah. Um, what I want to get into, man, like from a physician aspect of things, and we're going to get into the specific type of mm-hmm. physician that you are, man, but from a general standpoint, man, um, what are your thoughts on just coronavirus, man? What, what, what was the day-to-day um, that you saw? Like, you know, we may see one thing, but, you know, mm-hmm. you're in the forefront of it, man. Your whole protocol situation is different. Uh, worldly, globally, it's different, but you're in the forefront, man. What, what, what are your thoughts on it? It, coronavirus is is real. It's it's devastating. I, I think the danger of coronavirus is that the human species has not seen it before. So our bodies are immediately going to f- see it as foreign. And the reason uh, the reason it's also dangerous is that we don't doesn't matter what age you are. It's how our bodies react to f- to actually fight the virus. Mm. So what actually kills the patient is is the virus creates this immune response from the body, which ultimately that immune response creates so much inflammation and different changes within the body that it leads to, to, to death. And uh, I think the scary part is anybody could get it and we don't know uh, exactly who's going to react to it. We've, we've seen 25 year old healthy men not do well. We, we've seen the stereotypical 86 year old yeah. with diabetes not do well. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's so easily transmitted, especially via droplet. That's why we wear masks. Uh, but it could be as easy as someone coughs and touches something and I grab a plate and, and hand it to you two hours later and you use it, you know, and that's why they're trying to say, you know, keep it to just the immediate family. And if you have to, uh, maybe a friend or two. And, um, it, and because it's, we don't know a lot about it. Um, yeah. I actually, I appreciate, I, I, I'm a gastroenterology doctor. So I do deal with the stomach and the liver and things like that. I wouldn't say I'm right at the front line. The front line are the police officers, the the firefighters who have to respond to things that they don't know what they're going to deal with, the emergency medicine doctors, the EMTs out there in the field. Um, And of course, once the patient is brought to the hospital, it's the internal medicine doctors and the ICU doctors who who take care of them. And, And a couple other doctors that people don't know much about are the actual ICU doctors are called pulmonologists. They're pulmonary lung doctors because Yes, there's been complications from coronavirus that have killed patients for other reasons, but the main concern is uh, the way people's lungs respond to it. Are they going to have respiratory issues? And then they, that's why they go to the ICU for respirators. So I would say the ICU doctors, the infectious disease physicians, and the, uh, um, and the pulmonary doctors, they're, they're, they're right there at the front lines. They're most uh, at risk to get the disease. So what I would say from my perspective is I I found as a healthcare provider that I have to say that I wasn't right on the front lines. What it, what it brought for me was a huge sense of gratitude to see people that I know from medical school, colleagues that have helped me, things like that, who are on the front lines. So my one of my best friends is an infectious disease doctor. She's been working day and night fighting this thing. I have a lot of friends who were ICU doctors who got quite sick, who actually got the virus from working in the mm. ICU. So as a physician myself, the biggest thing that, the biggest two emotions that, uh, coronavirus this whole pandemic elicited out of me was one was sadness for the people that we lost and two was gratitude for the people that are fighting for it and and i i posted recently thanking my healthcare colleagues and not to take any away from them at all but i also wanted to also mention that i think there's a lot of military and police officers who are in very dense areas and they if you call 911, they're not going to say, well, there might be coronavirus there. We better not yeah. head over there. 
you know, so uh, I have a friend who's an emergency medicine doctor who's right on the front lines and her husband is a firefighter in Los Angeles. And um, I, I just have a very large sense of gratitude because there's a lot of things that, that I consider myself general population in terms of all these things. Um, uh, and there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. I think that people don't realize uh, the amount of danger that is by uh, when a paramedic gets called for someone that's not breathing well, they just go. There's no, mm, like yeah. what might be, are, the, uh, are those people wearing masks? And then they bring the patient straight to the ER and the emergency doctors are there, the nurses, all, and, and also when I say physicians, I'm not talking about just doctors, I'm talking about nurses and medical students and ancillary staff, like medical assistants and all those people. So yeah, as a physician, I'm very grateful for the people around me that have allowed me to continue to just live my normal life. Even so this morning I got up, I took the subway uh, to Lower East Side Manhattan to go to work to see my patients. Even the subway is running because there's someone there that's making it run. Yeah. And, uh, and every night the subway closes, I think around 12 to 1 a.m. And that's because there's people, hundreds of people, probably thousands, they clean the subways at night and then they get them back running again around four or 5 a.m. Um, so I think in my one of my recent Instagram posts, I talked about the fluidity of the United States. Yes, there's a lot of media talking about all the crap going on, like the, yeah. the Capitol, which was absolutely terrible. And, uh, you know, there's five, there were fires this year. There was racism all over the place, as we know. And, uh, but America still kind of run and where there was a lot of focus on other things. I think the real heroes are the people that just kept the, the country moving. And so uh, I appreciate that. And uh, um, yeah, I think, I think gratitude would be the number one thing. Sadness, number two. Um, a little bit of anger at times, but I realized that if you get angry at the people who won't wear their mask or are racist against African-Americans or Asians, you know, it, or anybody, it almost, it hurts, it, it hurts yourself to fight these people because they, they're, <laughs> yeah. you just, you get so angry and it eats you up inside. And you know, these people, they're not thinking about us whatsoever. Exactly. And, exactly. And, um, but I think advocacy is a very important thing though. It, 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 I, I, to be honest with you, Akeem, I, one of the things that affected me the most this year was seeing how much racism there was that these people, they, you wouldn't even think unless something happens and then they really comes out. There was racism against Chinese people. Didn't even matter if you're Japanese, Vietnamese, or yeah. Korean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody is Chinese now yeah. at the coronavirus. But I always, I posted once or twice about it in more to advocate, especially for old Asian Americans who are defenseless, but I always, I know I'm getting kind of off track no, here, no, but no. I always, I always kind of take a step back before getting really into these things because I had the luxury of the first time, maybe one time as a, when I was a kid, but that was far and few in between. But this is the first time I experienced racism against my ethnicity because coronavirus happened. But uh, I, I feel there's been racism against other races, um, especially African-American in the United States, which I shouldn't be so angry just because one thing happens in 2020 when people have been dealing with this their whole lives. So yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It's, I like to take things in perspective, yeah. like, yes, oh my God, everybody's attacking Asians, especially this past slip. I'd say April, May was pretty bad. Um, but again, I think these are those crazy people who used coronavirus as a vessel in order to, to get attack, what they really to, to it. Uh, yeah, to attack Asians. But uh, I, I don't think, um, if I may say so, I don't think Asians have faced the same uh, discrimination that maybe Blacks in America have. And that's where I think there was a lot of, um, 
I, I sensed a lot of, uh, and this is just through social media. I think the best conversations are had in person, mm-hmm. but I sensed a lot of strain between the Asian population at times and some of the African-American population because they were like, well, you guys are upset. All, Asians are upset all of a sudden. Um, now you get a taste of what we've been dealing with our whole life. And I think that's where I wanted the Asian population to understand. You know, man, I'm, I'm, everything that we're seeing has already happened before. I think now it's just being brought to the light a lot more, right? This, yeah. is, the, this is the generation of, of uh, smartphones and, 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 and things that we can capture. And in the drop of a second, yeah. we can post it. So, you know, I've always yeah. said, man, we're just we're now seeing everything at the forefront because we can tap and click into it and we're so connected. And so in moments like that, man, we just got to do our best to make sure that we continue to pave the way to be a positive light for people that look like us, but also just to be a a good human being. You know what I'm saying? Like being a good human being doesn't necessarily take too much. Do more good unto the world than you try to do negative things to those around you. And I yeah. think that is sometimes it's the simple concepts that are often the hardest for people to learn, you know, man. Yeah. So, um, but man, we could talk about that all day, man. I wanted to. Yeah. Sorry I, about that. I got oh, off track. No, a little it's, bit. It's, yeah. it's, it's good, man. But, you know, I wanted to get into, into, into some different parts, man, because like I said, yeah. man, like there's so many depths to you, man. I'm, I'm, let's go back to, University of California Davis, man. How did you get started yeah. into the medical field? Um, was it something that you always yeah. wanted to do? Like how, how, talk me a little bit about that. And, 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 and what was it like becoming a physician? Because the hours are a little yeah. bit different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, you know, people, you know, people that know me well, even to this, they're like, John, we don't know how you even got to this point because I'm 35 now. When I started medical school, I was, 22 and a half and I how can you compare Jonathan now at 35 a practicing physician to Jonathan 22 and a half just out of medical uh, just out of college going to Vegas drinking with his friends not that he doesn't do that anymore but you know how you can't compare you're different than you were I'm sure when you were 21 you know so uh I actually went into Davis as a, as an economics major. I wanted to somehow end up getting into business management and I wanted to be a sports agent actually. Yeah. At that time, the dream was, and when I was in high school, um, uh, so me and LeBron James are the same age. So that's, that's where we are. uh, uh, We're both 84 or 85. I think at that time, I don't even remember who else would, would have been. I think I would have, been like the agent for like the Juan Wagner or something like that. Like those basketball hey man, players before, anybody but, that gets um, into those fields, man, that's hey, you're not you're not chopped liver. <laughs> and, and to be honest with you, when I was getting towards the end of my college career, like you know halfway through junior year in college, I still didn't even know what I wanted to do. And most people, honestly, that are twenty, don't. Uh, it seems old when you're twenty, but it's so young now that I look back on it. So I just, I just said, you know what, one summer, I'm just going to take the rest of the science classes I might need and I'll just take the MCAT. I didn't do great on it. Um, I didn't focus the way I could now. Mm. And, and there's no way I had the maturity at that time to even do so. So, uh, but I got a good enough score and I was lucky enough to get into a Caribbean medical school called St. George. It's in Grenada. It's the uh, furthest island south of the Caribbean chain. I actually think you can see Venezuela from it <laughs> at times. So that's how far south it is. Um, uh, it, the misconception about Caribbean medical schools is that the kids are not smart and they're stupid. That's why they have to go there and they're they're kind of get the way through. You have to study very hard and could, because you have to end up taking the same tests as mm. anybody that would go to a US medical school. Um, I don't want anybody that thinks people would go to Caribbean school to believe that they're any less. And, and yes, at the time when we applied for medical school, did, the, did we have not as good scores and as a good GPA than someone that got into a medical school in the United States? Probably. Yeah. Um, but then you, then as you go through medical school, I feel that kind of like the, the crossroads or the, the roads kind of 
get into this kind of meat. And at that point, it doesn't matter if you went to UCLA, Harvard, or St. George, or Ross, you better be ready either way, because they'll, they'll figure it out if you're not ready. And um, I, so I went to medical school from 2012 to, uh, no, 2008 to 2012. And I graduated here at the Lincoln Center in 2012 from St. George. And then I did a year of internal medicine internship in Brooklyn, then two years at UCLA for my internal medicine residency. Uh, Then I did three years in Fresno in Central California for gastroenterology fellowship. Then I went back to UCLA to do a year of liver and pancreas specialty. So that was 11 years of medical training. And now when I've reached this point, uh, I don't see as much of a, anybody say, oh, well, he went to a Caribbean medical school. As you're going through medical school, maybe some people say things like that, but uh, I always tell them, yeah, I wasn't as focused when I was 22, but it shouldn't matter once someone's graduated because you can't compare me now Mm. to when I was 22. I'm an entirely uh, different person. And yes, a lot of characteristics don't change in some ways with people, but absolutely someone can mature and focus more and become more diligent in their work and more diligent in their craft and more meticulous. And uh, um, yeah, I, it, was, it was a pretty wild journey though. And, and uh, a lot of people come up to me, parents of kids who are now you know in their twenties. Oh, you know, um, my kid, you know, he did okay in college. He'd like to become a, a physician. Uh, he's thinking about applying to, to a Caribbean medical school like St. George because the, they do give people who maybe didn't do as well opportunity. Uh, what do you think? And, and I tell them the same thing every time. If, if your kid is willing to work and, and, and it doesn't mean he has to be ready now, but he has to be willing to grow through the years, uh, a certain work ethic, conscientiousness, and uh, maybe even a little swagger in that, then, <laughs> then they can, uh, he'll definitely do it. Um, uh, and it doesn't matter whether you go to UCLA or St. George, you can make it if you're willing to put the work in. There's so many different avenues, man, that you mm-hmm. could have taken, right? Yeah. What, what, what was so, what, what puts you on the path to study the stomach and intestines and the liver and the pancreas and all that, man? What, 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 what led you there? Yeah. Uh, well, I would say when I was in in doing internal medicine residency, um, I felt that the gastrointestinal tract was the only one that was, other than the brain, of course, that was truly connected to everything. The gastrointestinal tract is the only organ that is mouth all the way down to the butt. You have the mm-hmm. esophagus, then the stomach, then the small intestine, then the colon, then the rectum, then everything comes out. Um, and it also encompasses the liver, the pancreas. Um, and so it seemed like one of the most important body parts because it's, it's intimately connected to all other organs. And uh, uh, it, 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 I felt it just gave the best, it, it encompassed like everything I wanted to, to be involved with. Man, so. we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna clear up some things for, you know, for those yeah. listening, for those that watch uh, yeah. Grey's Anatomy, Heavy, for those who watch all those mm-hmm. things, man. When, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when it comes to the, the first year there, the attending resident, um, mm-hmm. what is that like? Is it really like how the show says where you're on call like 24 seven, you're not really sleeping. Um, you're getting called and you're rushing into surgery and you're rushing into all these different things and you got to do consultations, man. What, what, what was that like for you? And, and, and I guess you being in the field, how much of the show for people listening, I guess, is real? Yeah. Uh, for things like Scrubs, Grey's Anatomy, the actual stress that they, that they portray in it, the actual having to, you're about to sit down to eat, all of a sudden you're rushing down to the emergency department or rushing into the surgery with, with an attending, that's real. And, and I actually think they do a pretty good job of that. The actual hours, um, I think is real too. And they've tried to change it a little bit, but part of the value of uh, residency especially, and those horrible hours, I, I, I've worked 30 hours before, is, is you, you're training your body to, to think 
when you're tired because it's going to happen. That's, mm. that's what I think is the most important. And you can't, you can't train the body to think when they're tired unless someone's actually tired. So if you make all these rules where you make sure residents are not tired in any way and they're not upset, um, then, uh, then, you know, that you, you're not truly trained because once you're done with the residency, then it's you. And that's fine. That's, there's actually a lot of value in that. Um, but I feel not just physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, part of medicine and part of the, I think part of what we're trained to do is to uh, make quick decisions, educated decisions under pressure when we're tired, scared, uh, upset or mad even. Um, even when, the, when you're at angry at a patient, you have to make the right decision. So residency is a, actually, I really, well, residency, the rigor and the hours, I think Grey's Anatomy and medical shows have done a good job of portraying and it, but, but the misconception is that it's, uh, that it's wrong. And it's, I think it's, I personally think it's important to train the body to be able to think under pressure. It's the same reason why I would imagine I'm not, I've never, I'm not in the military, but I, they train military to shoot guns under pressure or to, to, you know, coordinate under pressure. Um, and I'm sure it's the same reason they probably made you run around the track under pressure so many times. It, it's entirely different. And you know better than me, I'm sure. Uh, it's entirely different when it's really actually going down. It's, it's, so, it's yeah. the discipline, man. You know, I remember like, yeah, exactly. you know, with, with, with all my years, especially competing professionally, you know, at the Olympic level, man, it's, it's, it's one big poker game, right? It's, it's whoever can be calm amongst the chaos is usually the yeah. ones who executes the, you know, the best. Right. And I think sometimes in pressure situations, what we do is we try to do something different. We don't trust our training. We don't trust what we've been right. doing. Right. And I think right. that's when issues can start to happen. And that's when you don't compete to the best of your ability, man. But when you're in those 30 hour days, man, what, what, what is going through your head? Is your body just like on autopilot? Like, how do you, yeah, it is part of your training to train yourself, but at the same time, man, sometimes the tiredness like gets a hold of you, right? How do you, what are some ways that you snap back to yourself and to continue going? I think most residents and fellows, when they go on these 30 hour calls, they, it goes in waves. When you come in in the morning, you come in typically 7 a.m. and you have your normal day. And then uh, you probably, there's probably a little wave of sadness at one point, maybe a few minutes at that day where you think about, man, you forget you're not going home at five or six. You're staying there till noon the next day. But then I think, I think in some ways there's eventually this feeling of acceptance and you just finish your day at five to six and then all your other resident friends and the other attendings, they go home. And then there's this kind of sense of duty because you know, you're, you're especially when you're the senior resident, it's not, it, when you're all on call overnight as a resident, you're not always just you. You have to worry about people who, medical students and junior residents who are looking to you for decision-making. So there's a sense of responsibility that I think kind of overtakes the fatigue. Mm. And, uh, I would say I would say from about 7 p.m. to midnight, you're usually pretty good because there's stuff going on. Uh, you're so distracted, you don't get tired. But there's always that determination to try to get some rest because they're all call rooms with these little beds. And uh, I swear, my my the the call room where I worked was was haunted. There's something up there. But uh, anyway, so around midnight, you try to you're you're just praying that. The ICU stays quiet. The cardiac care unit with the congestive heart failure patients and heart transplant patients stays quiet. That you're hoping the emergency, the ER doctors and the ER stays quiet. Um, you're hoping this, the nothing comes in that needs an emergent surgery, like a gunshot wound or something like that, or a bowel obstruction. And by that, I would say around 1, one to 4 a.m. is when, when you really are so focused on trying to just stay quiet or you're taking care of something. I would say the, the hardest time to stay awake is when it's starting to get bright again for the next morning. At that point, you're about 24 hours in. I would say anywhere from five to 8 a.m. is the toughest because you 
have to stay awake somehow, but you can't just sleep because the, the attending's coming in, understandably, yeah. at, at 8, 9 a.m., and he or she wants to know about how the patients did overnight. And you can't say, well, I was, it was, I was so tired. Figure it out yourself. Can't say that. But that is part of the training. Mm. Um, and, uh, and usually go through all the patients the next day with the attending uh, from about 9 a.m. to noon or one o'clock. And then you usually leave the hospital about one o'clock. And you actually get a rush of energy when you leave because you're so happy to be done. And part of the nice thing is you're done for the day. So let's say I had an overnight call. Let's say I started Wednesday at 7 a.m., stayed overnight, and I finished Thursday at 1 p.m. I go home for the rest of the day. Residents are required to have the following day off once they're done. And I know the next time I come back to work, it's not going to be Thursday. It'll be Friday morning. So that's yeah. that's that's the little reward. Like you come in a, a day after. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you make it to the weekend. Um, but it's not easy. But uh, I, I think I think it's uh, it's a choice that people make and they know it going in. Um, and uh, I, most people, I think, would say it's worth it. And it's really only three to five years at the most. And, uh, yeah, man, it's, you know, we, we, you know, obviously we when a person comes into the hospital, um, you know, it's, it's usually not because of their own will. Usually something happens that led them to there, man. And we would always, you know, as people in general, I'm sure you you always want to make sure that they come in. And they, they come in maybe not feeling so well and they come out figuring things out and, you know, you can send them on their way. But obviously it doesn't always work like that, man. When something comes in and you have to give a patient a news that they don't want to hear, uh, what gets you to be able to deliver the news? Because nobody wants to give bad news, man. But, but right. what is that process like for you? You know, I, I truly believe, and it's not just limited to to healthcare. I think Absolutely. there's a lot of jobs that require that. Delivering bad news is not easy, especially if it's a, a terminal cancer diagnosis, for example, or a family member has died or is probably going to die soon. Um, it, I don't think it. I, I don't. I think there's going to be pain for for especially for the family re uh, receiving the news, no matter what. So the best thing is direct, you should be truthful and uh, forthright and direct. Um, I think the families deserve the truth. And I think uh, that it, that's another powerful tool that's I think learned a lot in medical school and residencies, delivering bad news and, and sad medical news. Um, I, I always just tell the truth. And uh, I think that's, that's, there's no other way to do it, I don't think. Um, one caveat is, um, and I think again, it speaks it's with a lot of other jobs, is um, sometimes families prefer not to know the news and they have a right actually mm. to not want to know. So you always have to make sure you know who you're talking to and who's in the room. It's easy to, if you see the, the patient's, let's say, wife in the waiting room to go straight to her and tell her things, but you don't know if there's a brother-in-law or a distant cousin that's also sitting in the room so I think it, it does um, kind of walk a fine line with uh, patient confidentiality and HIPAA and things like that but um, once you've identified that you're talking to the right people who do want to know the news and that the patient wants those people to know the news then um, then I don't, I personally, I always tell them exactly what I think is going on and, and, and the truth. And, and I, re, and it's important to respect all faiths and, and religions. A lot of people, I've encountered a good number of patients who scientifically, I felt the patient probably didn't have much time, mm. um, but the family didn't want to believe it and, and chose to hang on to faith and, and you have to respect that. Um, but they still deserve to know the scientific truth because that's why people come to the hospital is to have, I guess, physicians and healthcare providers' opinions based on what they think is, is right. Um, so I think it's important to deliver the truth and respect all cultures because everybody takes it differently and, and believes things will change differently. Ma'am, you know, this is the, 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 
there was one thing that that when I first started following you and just keeping up with you and, and speaking with you, man, is um, just the amount of hats that you wear. And I know in your profession, not just in your profession, but other professions too, as well, too. I think we're all we're all trying to figure out work-life balance, right? Trying to understand right. uh, what is too much, what is too little, what is the right amount. But from what I've seen, man, you're still able to go out and to be active, play sports. Mm-hmm. I know you're big into fashion. I know you're big into mm-hmm. how do you find work-life balance? What does that, what, what does that look like for you once you're out of the scrubs? Mm-hmm. Man, it, it all comes from a drive. It's, I swear it's in here, man. It makes me happy. It gets me going. Uh, I believe in this cliche hundred percent. There's, if you love something and if you like something, there's time, there's always time if you make time. And it's the same thing that I believe in dating and relationships. If someone wants to see you, they'll see you. There's, there's no such thing as, oh man, I might have to go see my mom this weekend. I might have to hang out with this friend. Maybe I'll talk. If someone wants to see you, they will see you. If, if you want to do something, you'll make time for it. If you're not making time for it, then you don't really want to do it. Um, I, I work hard as a physician that patients come first. Uh, family time comes first, but man, I, I love high intensity training, fitness, working out. I'm, I'm a good soccer player. I love football, basketball, everything. And I'm not going to stop until my body doesn't allow me to do so. But again, why would my body, other than a freak accident, my body wouldn't allow me to do so only if I don't take care of my body. Mm. Um, and I, I'm 35 now, and and I actually feel I'm in better shape than I ever was when I was 23 or 24 because I I I try to eat better. I I still think people you got to go out, you know, and and go out to eat thing. and everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think you necessarily have to eat this meal plan diet per se, but uh, you eat good when you can. And and the most important thing is you could diet all you want if you don't exercise, then you know, then it's not going to balance itself. But uh, I love uh, fitness. It's, it's good to show, to show an example for my own patients, because I encourage all my patients, if they're able to, to, especially my gastrointestinal patients to stay active and work out. And I've said time and time again, I don't care what you do to move your body. If you don't like running on the treadmill, if you don't like lifting weights or playing soccer, but if, but if you like playing laser tag, go play laser tag, at least you're moving around. Right now, I wouldn't play Lady Tag, but, <laughs> but when COVID's over. Yeah, um, after, after, after. <laughs> but uh, I I take pride in keeping myself healthy because I know it's going to be good for my family someday. Uh, it's going to be good because I want to be strong to take care of my parents as they get older. It's good to, I, I don't feel I should tell my patients to do it if I'm not doing it myself. <laughs> and thanks to Instagram, I've been so fortunate to connect with a lot of fitness people in the world who have helped me a lot the way I would have helped my patients um they have expertise that I don't in how to work out properly especially as my body ages um I've been able to meet you and and just athletes that you never would think you'd have the opportunity to meet uh I've been able to connect with with a major league soccer player with with a with a Pittsburgh Pirates baseball player, with an Olympic gold medalist like yourself, who would have thought, right? Uh, I, I otherwise I just play Madden and I and I create myself. And for example, in Madden, I'm a six foot six uh, quarterback. So Man, just just saying, we can always dream. Um, the dream never dies. Mm-hmm. Oh no, it's not a dream. I just won a Super Bowl yesterday. No, um, but uh, uh, and I love. Um, I love, I like fashion because it's, it's, I think it's a good way to express yourself. And, and I think this is a conversation for another time, but I've, I've, I've taken pride in changing the American stereotype of the Asian American man. I think the Asian American man is generally thought smaller, maybe more timid, not as attractive in certain media outlets. I'm not saying in general, but, Mm -hmm. and so I, I took pride in that. I felt that I think the climate's changing, things are changing, and and I I take fashion in a way to show that anybody can express themselves. I feel the fashion industry is still dominated by uh, by maybe women, Caucasian women. Uh, I felt that this is a way for men to take back this what this uh, avenue of 
of uh, expression. Asian men, you rarely see um, on a billboard around here in China. You might see it everywhere, but it's a different culture. I understand that. But I said, hey, who cares if people don't think I'm attractive? I like it. If you Again, it goes back to if you enjoy it, you're going to make time for it. So I try different things that I I think look good, and and I thought I thought the best quote it's on I'm I'm sure you've seen on my profile from Billy Baldwin, uh, he basically says wear what you want to wear doesn't matter what it is because if you truly love what you wear it never goes out of style. Man, so that's best, and that's I wear best, and I love and I live I love wearing sweatpants and I like wearing sweatpants. So so is it in fashion? I don't know, but it is for me because I like it. sweatpants. So, is always yeah. always yeah. going to be in style, man. Yeah. Uh, man, so before we get into these last five easy questions, man, um, I want to know, man, like what what does a typical day look like for you, including? Mm-hmm when you are maybe going to work out or you're doing some mm-hmm. shoots, but walk me yeah. through what you're doing from the moment that you wake up to the moment that you lay your head down. Oh yeah, I'll give you a typical, even even today, uh, a typical Friday for me might be I wake up, uh, well, I'm one of those people that's able to roll out of bed and just head straight to work <laughs> and I'll just kind of slide into my desk and people will think I've been there the whole time. Uh, I usually, my, my, day, my clinic starts at 8 a.m. I usually wake up around 7.30 and I uh, take the subway uh, in Manhattan to work. I see patients from 8 uh, 8 a.m. to noon. Uh, Then I take lunch from 12 to 1. Then I take the subway to a different center uh, to get to my endoscopy center. It's a surgical center where I do my procedures like colonoscopies, endoscopies. That ends about 5 p.m. Sometimes if I'm on call at night with the hospital, sometimes with the fellows and things like that for emergencies like bleeding ulcers or people swallow something and get stuck in their throat, um, then I'll just kind of settle down for the night and make sure I'm ready to take that call if it comes in. But on a typical day, my day ends at 5 p.m. I'll come home, eat a little something, then I head straight to the gym. Uh, and I use the workout for an hour. Oh, no, no, I would say two hours, actually. Uh, that's about five to seven. And then I come back, eat maybe seven to eight, seven to nine, uh, talk to family, take care of anything I need to business-wise. And then, for example, coming up, uh, if it was that Friday, um, then nine o'clock, uh, I probably, I might head over to Chinatown. They just lit all these lanterns for Chinese New Year. It's beautiful on Mott Street in Chinatown, Manhattan. And uh, I might even grab my friend who takes amazing uh, photos and I might do a little fashion there, take a little bit of scenery pictures. That will probably, that will probably take for about nine to 11. Uh, And then I'll come back, relax a little bit. I don't know, watch some TV. And then, um, you know, I've done things where if there's something going on that I'm excited about, I'll make time for it. I'll, I've come back after doing let's say a photo shoot at, at midnight. I'll get up again at 4 a.m. and head somewhere else and go do something else. And I'll, I'll, I'll find time to rest, but I, I budget. I think it's important to budget your time. And um, once I've, I'll be tired sometimes going to something, but once I get started, I'm actually don't feel tired anymore. And that's how I know I enjoy it. Johnny, this question just came to my mind, man. Uh, yeah. Man, what is it like in the surgery room, man? Like what? what? So, mm-hmm. Yeah, just walk me a little bit about that because you want to talk about well, pressure. <laughs> yeah, I, so I don't do surgeries like I cut into patients. Well, I guess some ways I do. I am one of the procedures that I do that's a little more uh, complicated for gastroenterologists is I put a camera down someone's mouth into their small intestine. And from that area, I put wires through that camera and oh, put them man. into the patient's liver and pancreas. And I'm able to do a lot of different things like uh, you know, I deal with cancer, uh, gallstones, things like that. Um, that's actually can be high pressure because there's, there's higher risks of things like inflammation, the pancreas, because I literally have a wire near there. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, the patient can have some bleeding. Rarely the patient can have a perforation, meaning the scope make, makes an actual hole in the wall of the intestine. You know, when you're actually in there, you trust your training, which is why those hours and fellowship are, and residency are so important. And you, you have you do what's right for the patient. And what I've learned over time doing a few years of very complex procedures is I pretend the patient 
is my parents? What would I do? And uh, I, it's never something if you should never guess if you don't feel comfortable doing something, you shouldn't do it. But that comes with training and experience. You kind of get to know what you feel comfortable with doing and not doing. Um, never rush, never get angry. And these are all things that I find are the same things I bet they're teaching NBA rookies and oh, NFL rookies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, if someone pushes you, don't push them back because you're going to get the flag, you know. Um, and, and I think one of the best things about healthcare is, at least in my experience, is you're never truly alone. I, I've been in situations where, uh, you know, because in residency and fellowship in those three to six years, you can't possibly be presented every scenario. Absolutely. So troubleshooting is a huge skill that was developed partially in training, meaning residency, medical school, and fellowship, but is honed through the years of experience. And I don't think that ever stops because there's always going to be a new complication. So I encountered a couple of complications when I, uh, not complications, but a couple of things where something happened. I said, oh, I'm not sure what I would do in this situation because I never encountered it in residency. Mm. So I, I, yeah. I, called one of my colleagues who has more experience and there's always someone there to help. There's a lot of nurses in the room. There's a lot of x-ray techs, operating room nurses, things like that. And it's always important to keep your cool because everybody kind of, everybody kind of feeds off one person. And, and usually it typically is the physician that's in the operating room. Yeah. Um, uh, everybody's on even ground. It's not to say the physician is the boss or anything because they're not. It's just, uh, if I start being irritated, everybody else starts being irritated. So that's a skill I've had to learn with. And I, so I think the biggest thing is there's high stress situations, but just like you would in the, if you're a chef in a kitchen with a lot of sous chefs or uh, a coach or a, like the captain of a football team, you have to keep your cool. And you have to learn that if you keep your cool, you're not doing it for yourself or the staff, you're doing it for the patient. Yeah, um, but but uh, some of the high stress things that you see on ER on TNT or Grey's Anatomy, yes, there's some dramatization, but it's real, and I felt it myself before. And and just to quickly go back to those TV shows, some of those relationships, those are real. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names or or facilities, but that stuff is real. Yeah, and yeah. you know what? It's it's human nature. Absolutely. You know what are you going to do? Uh, and and the arguments are real. Um, and the crying is real. Uh, and I think there's just no cameras there. Yeah. <laughs> there's no cameras in these hospitals. But I, I think there's, I think where I would argue is that there's criticism of that happening in the hospitals, but we're talking high stress situations, yeah. high emotional situations with people who spend more time with each other than they do with their families at times. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to human nature where we have to understand certain emotions and things like that. But um, yeah, the OR is a stressful uh, place. Um, and and you'll, be, you'll be surprised. I've seen it um, as doing surgical rotations and doing surgeries as a gastroenterologist in the hospital. It's high stress in there because you want what's best for the patient. But the moment everybody leaves the operating room to wash their hands, the air is less thick. Everybody takes a deep breath. And there is a, a sense of calm afterwards. So I don't know, people might not yeah. agree with me, but I, I think the TV shows dramatize it actually quite real. Yeah. The, those, those emotions are real. Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm learning a lot, man. I know I was trying to do some research on, you know, what a grass, gastroenterologist is, but I'm just like, you know yeah. what, let me take a step back and just figure it out as I ask the questions, man, because I just think, yeah. I just think the human anatomy is so interesting in so many different ways. Like it can be so strong but so weak at the same time in different ways, man. But um, man, let's get into these last five questions, man. Five All questions right. I usually ask everybody um, in different ways. Um, question one, man, if you were trapped on an island for a, a week, what are three things that you would bring with you? And that doesn't include food and water and things like that, right? It, it, uh, it, uh, no, you got to okay, hunt okay. for yourself, man. You got to wash your own clothes. You got to do all of that. All right. <laughs> I'd probably have, uh, I'd have some kind of a weapon, probably. I'd probably want to go with a sword or a spear because 
I, yeah, I could have a gun, but eventually I'd run out of ammo. But I need something, like you said, to hunt. I probably could figure out how to find water. Um, well, then if it's on an ocean, ooh, okay. If I'm trapped on an island, I'm gonna be kind of medical here, but I'd probably get, get one of those things that can convert salt water to fresh water to drink, be able to drink, because I want to live. Third thing would be, honestly, it'd probably be my iPhone with my iPods, because then I have pictures of family and friends to keep me going, and I can listen to music. And that <laughs> iPhone comes with a portable charger. <laughs> Question two, man. Um, yeah. You're 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 hosting a dinner, yeah. and you can mm -hmm. have four guests, past uh, and present, man. Who are who are four guests you would have? Ooh, okay. That's two of them are easy for me. One is Barack Obama because I think he's one of the coolest presidents, and I thought I think he'd I'd have all these questions for him about what really goes down, and I feel like he'd give me a straight answer. Yeah, he wouldn't bullshit me like maybe Clinton or 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 uh, who's the guy right now? I don't even know his name anymore. Uh, but uh, Barack Obama seems cool. I would ask him all sorts of things about national security and things like that. Um, is there really like an elevator that goes down to the bunker, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, two, um, I'm a big sports guy. It's a huge toss up between Jordan and Steph Curry, but Curry's more modern. So I'm, I'm gonna have to go with, uh, with Michael Jordan. So he'd be my sports guy. I would probably want to talk to, does, can I choose my great grandfather that I never met? Cause he Absolutely. was, yeah. So my great, I'll show you a picture of him sometime. Akeem, this guy Please looked, do. this, this, this guy looked like a boss, man. He had a beard down to here. He looks like he's from the movie Crouching Tiger. <laughs> so it would be Barack Obama, Michael Jordan, my great grandfather on my dad's side. I'd probably have to go with, Honestly, my great grandmother on my 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 mom's side, so yeah, two grand two great grandparents. Yeah, that that'd be, be that'd be an interesting conversation. Yeah, man. yeah those those four. Yeah, uh, yeah. Question three, man. You know, we, we, I'm a firm believer, and you know, we've kind of briefly talked about it before, man. Um, you have to pour into yourself to be what you need to be to everything else around you, man. What is one thing that you do for yourself every day? Like one thing you say that, like, you know, I got to do this today. To be honest with you, I think one thing that I've worked on for a long time is patience. I didn't yeah. used to be the most patient person. And, and I think patience encompasses meticulousness, diligence. I needed to, and it also encompasses having a good temper, things like that, having good temperament. So um, I, think I've, I think I've matured a lot, which has allowed me to hone that characteristic, which, which is why I think people can change. People say, oh, you are who you are. Those are just the characteristics you have people can grow. And uh, I think patience allowed me to, uh, to grow as a physician, to grow as a person, to be a better family person, to be a better son, better brother, um, and a better doctor, um, and a better friend. So that's something I still wake up every morning. And before I go to bed, I do pray a little bit. Uh, I always, I always, it's just my personal beliefs. I always thank God for allowed me to become a better person. And I've said that, I've prayed that same thing since I can remember, since like maybe seventh grade. I, I thank him for allowing me, him or her, I guess, for allowing mm -hmm. me to become a better person every day. And for me, I always wake up saying, you know what, no matter what happens, you have to take, you have to take, take a step back, be patient, think about things, think things through. And, and you know what, I, one thing I forgot is the, always be good to people you never know what's going on I'm I've been guilty of it sometimes where maybe I wasn't you know as kind as I should have been to someone that I didn't know when I was younger and you there's a there's been times where where you know maybe I was going through something and someone wasn't so nice to me and I'm like man they have no idea that it, I'm they don't have any idea that's the thing so I think kindness and patience are really things to remind yourself. And and kindness isn't like you go to the soup kitchen and and or you go donate some clothes and then you feel good about yourself for yeah. a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. It's about consistency every day. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean you can't do something you shouldn't on a certain day, but 
your heart should always be towards helping somebody and being kind and treating them as if if you were trying to help your mother out. And it's not easy. It's not easy. So I think, yeah, those are the two things, kindness and patience. And I'm, I've always been a kind person, but there's been ways that I could have improved and continue. There's ways that I'm continuing to, yeah. to grow. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Like we're all a work in progress, man. And, and we, we don't want to be the same person today that we will be a year from now, right? And yeah, so- Absolutely. Um, Question four, man, being a gastronologist, man, for many that don't know, man, what, what, what is one general thing, I guess, what's, what's one of the most important things that you would tell people about that? Because I know you deal with the colon as well, too. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of people don't talk about that, especially males, but tell me, tell me one thing that if there was a message to get across directly, mm-hmm. what, would mm-hmm. that one, what would that one message be? Number one thing is colon cancer is real. It's the third leading cause of, of uh cancer death in the United States most years. Um, It's real. Uh, And colon cancer or uh, colon cancer screening with colonoscopy, which I believe should start at 45 years old now for all adults. It's a truly genuinely good primary preventative mechanism to prevent colon cancer. Gastroenterologists almost always can find any polyp that would, if left in someone's colon for 10, 15 years, if it's the wrong type, can become a colon cancer. If I never did a colonoscopy, let's say you never got a colonoscopy, Akeem, for the rest of your life, you'd probably be fine, but I can't say for sure there's not a pop in there someday that might become a colon cancer. And so get screened. If you're 45, go see your primary care doctor, go see your gastroenterologist, ask for a colonoscopy, and you should have one at least every 10 years until you're 75, 80 years old. Um, And then just to dispel the the uh, misconception that because I'm a poop doctor, I'm around this smelly room and poop everywhere and it probably smells like shit. Um, surprisingly, I didn't even know this until I trained in gastroenterology. Most 95% of the time it does, uh, when I do colonoscopies or when there's poop, it doesn't smell. Hmm. And it's not because I'm used to it. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It truly just, most colonoscopies, the patients have, clean their colons out because that's what I have to do to be able to, for me to be able to see their colon nice and clear. And, uh, they, it, it doesn't smell. Every, so, every 10 uh, but, years, I got, I got to, I got to write yeah, that one down. Starting every, um, starting at 45 years old, every adult should start getting screened or at least open the conversation with a primary care doctor of getting uh, colonoscopy for colon cancer screening. Last question, man. You know, you've 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 obviously done some great things, helping a lot of people. You're working on yourself and and you're doing all these things to become a wholesome human being. As you've already done a great job with that, man. Um, if there was one word to describe you, man, what would that one word be and why? I would say. Ooh, I was gonna say. The two would be excited and hopeful. If I had to choose one mm. out of those two, I would, I, I would say, I would say excited. I'm excited for, for me personally. I'm excited for what lies ahead for me. I'm going to continue to, to become a better physician, gain more experience in the media world. Uh, improve my fitness. I've already connected with so many good people. So I'm excited for myself, for the relationships that lie ahead for me. Um, I'm excited for healthcare because I'm, I'm hopeful that, well, I shouldn't say hope. I sh- I'm excited that this pandemic should end hopefully in the next couple of years. I'm excited for everybody to get their vaccine. I'm excited for what the world will look like after we're out of this. I'm excited for the new presidential administration in some ways. I'm not excited about the taxes they're going to probably impose on us, but um, they're, uh, I'm excited for this new change because the past four years haven't been great. Um, and I do think that a lot of things start from the top. And uh, it, it's one thing to actively speak out against something. It's one thing to stay silent. Um, and I think... Uh, I think there's a lot of cultural acceptance that needs to continue. And I, and I think I'm, kind of, I'm excited for the future. I think it is going to get better. I think racism 
will slowly improve. There's a lot of areas in this country that, you know, probably neither of us will ever visit. And that's, you know, and, and I think I'm excited for the future because it really starts like you had alluded to earlier. It starts with us leading by example and teaching the next generations the right way. I, to be honest with you personally, I think there's a conversation to be had, but I don't know if there was, if there's a lot that can be changed of a 65 year old man who has certain negative or racist beliefs who was probably raised that way his whole life by his own parents. But yeah. I think the, the next generations are, are what's important. And I feel that you and I are kind of at that age where we're young enough to see both sides of it. Absolutely. And then, but old enough to guide the future generation to begin to guide the future generations. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited for myself, for the community, for, for our country. Um, and it sounds cliche, but I, I really am. I want to see what happens with, uh, with how um, health improves, uh, racism hopefully improves because it's negative thing. When negative things happen, that's when you see what really people and communities are about. And yeah. I think it really elicited what's really going on. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it can only get better from here. That's what I'm excited man, about. I'm, we're, I'm, we're going up, going up. I'm, I'm right there with you, man. We gotta, we gotta continue to stay hopeful and to do our part to leave this world better off than how we found it in our own authentic yeah. way, man. Um, but where can people keep in touch with you, man? I know you're heavy on Instagram, man. Tell us. Tell the tell the people the Instagram handle, man. Thank you, thank you, brother. This is uh, Johnny underscore K on Instagram. Appreciate you guys, Akeem. I appreciate you. Um, you inspire me honestly, and uh, I'm honored to be on your uh, on your podcast. And uh, we're gonna get you out to New York to work out sometime. Hey, man, we're so gonna. I, I'm I'm pretty slow though, man. You, uh, hey, um, hey, everybody's so. fast in some area, man. We'll figure out an area to. <laughs> But brother, right. it's, 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 it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing with me, man. It's uh, again, I look forward to when we do meet in person and, you know, just to further our, our discussions, but also just to connect and continue to build that relationship, man. So thank you for your time, man. And thanks for the knowledge that you shared. Thank you so much, brother. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good, man. Take care, bro. All right. Take care. <laughs>